Greetings in the name of Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks to follow Paul's words from Romans chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We seek this harmony in Christ through the clear and concise teachings confessed in the Book of Concord. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. We continue our study in the Book of Concord with the small catechism and the close of the commandments. This is a part of the Ten Commandments we often overlook. Not quite sure why. Maybe it's because it's at the end and we're ready to get to the creed and all the glories of the first, second, and third articles. Or maybe it says some words that we don't quite understand, so we just kind of skirt over them. For example, that the Lord is a jealous God. Like, well, I thought the, uh, don't you know we have a, a, a radical God or amazing God, whatever it might be, but jealous? How does that look? Let's find out today. So take out your small catechism, dust it off, the Christ-filled, trusty little book for the gifts are ready, ready for you. If you have any questions concerning our study of the small catechism, especially with the Ten Commandments up to the close of the commandments, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Every day we hear from people around the world, which is why we want to hear from you. Where are you studying the Book of Concord with us? Around the world, maybe locally, maybe in the middle of nowhere, all of that we want to hear from you. So send us an email. Tell us where you're studying and maybe how you heard about Concord Matters. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchemeyer of excuse me, Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Ketchemeyer, welcome to Concord Matters. Hey, it's great to be here. Pastor, this is a different church. I started, um, you know, saying a different church, Mount Calvary in San Antonio. Uh, you weren't there before when we spoke. So tell us about Mount Calvary and uh, your journey there. Uh, that, that's correct. I, I was in Los Alamos, New Mexico. I had uh, planted the mission there. I was there for 17 years. So we had started that wow. congregation in Los Alamos. And now the Lord has uh, chosen to call me here to San Antonio, Texas. And so I was just uh, installed just at the end of August, August 25th, and now here we are in uh, September. And so this is all new to me. Uh, uh, we've been to Texas before. We used to live in Houston for a while. I used to be director mm-hmm. of parish education in uh, Our Savior, Houston. Uh, so now we're back in Texas here. So uh, just it's a wonderful people here at Mount Calvary, uh, a wonderful uh, confessional liturgical congregation. Well, the Lord's blessings to you on that. I do ask our listeners to pray for pastors when they transition from one call to the next. One, you're grieving the church you left, especially, I can't imagine this is a church that you, not you planted, the Lord worked through you to start this congregation. And then you move somewhere new and the family dynamics and apartments and and not not a house yet. All of that can be quite stressful. Um, uh, Is this a fair prayer for you t- today, for uh, for our listeners to pray for you and your family? Most definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good. Well, we lift you up in prayer and ask the Lord's blessings upon you and the saints at Mount Calvary. But, Pastor, we are here in the small catechism, and we're gonna we're we're still in the Ten Commandments. And I do want to ask this question first before we dig in. 
If you look at the the uh, small catechism, which we are studying from Luther's small catechism with explanation from the 2017 version through CPH. And so if you look on page 13, I've been doing this all throughout the Ten Commandments with our guests, is it says the Ten Commandments, and then there's some words between that and the actual commandments, where it says, as the head of the family should teach them in a simple way to his household. What is Luther getting at, and does it apply to us today, Pastor? Oh, most definitely. It totally applies to us today. Of course, when Luther writes up the small catechism itself, he is just appalled at the lack of uh, understanding of the Christian faith that the average person has. I mean, so you, you had the, the parish priests who were uneducated, and they were not educating the people. And so it's the responsibility, ultimately, of, of a father, the head of the household, to bring up his family in the faith. And and. So what he does is he provides this small catechism. It's just a very simple way to teach the Christian faith. I mean, basically what he's doing is he's, he's taking the understanding of the home and the whole environment that Luther had in the, the monastic life in the monastery, and he's kind of just taking this back into the home and saying that, you know, in the monastery, you are, you're studying God's word, you are having fellowship at a table together, eating together, and you are discussing uh, the Lord's word, you're learning the Lord's word, praying together, and so in the small catechism, I mean, you have prayer at the opening of the day, prayer at the close of the day, prayer before meals, prayer after meals, and just a simple way to have this, this dialogue, a question and answer. You know, what does this mean? Hear the Word of God, uh, discuss it, think about it, contemplate, meditate, uh, rejoice in the gifts that God gives. But it, it goes back to that fourth commandment, you know, you honor your father and your mother, and it, it's from that household that that Christian faith is then to be given to the next generation. And so it's a responsibility, of course, the, the head of the household to, to make sure that the household is, is gathering with fellow saints, with the baptized in a congregation, where you're congregating together in the, the public service, too. And then, of course, it's obviously the, the role of the pastor then to teach the Christian faith uh, purely, uh, delivering the gospel and the, uh, administering the sacraments. And so it goes hand in glove together with what's going on in the household and what's going on with the church, because in a way, the house is kind of like a little church, and then you gather with other households around the fellowship of the Lord's table, where you share the Lord's supper, and you receive the gifts from Him. So this is something that goes back to the Old Testament, of course. I mean, we're talking about this with Moses in the Ten Commandments, which he looks at the Ten Commandments in, in Deuteronomy, the second time, for instance, uh, when you're supposed to be teaching your children these things. You know, you, you get in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where you, you're having him t tell, so Moses is kind of giving this like farewell sermon, and he's telling the people of God about what they are to do when they go into the promised land, and you are to teach your children. Some are for me all the people so that I can tell them my words, that they may learn to fear me is what the Lord wants, and that so that they may teach their children. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And then, of course, in mm -hmm. Deuteronomy 5, that's where it's the retelling of the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. And then, of course, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that's the Shema, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and with all your soul and all your might. And these are the words that Moses says you're to command and shall be on your heart. And then these are the words that you shall recite 
which to your children, and you shall talk about them at the time of your living in the house, you're coming and you're going and you're walking on the road, you're lying down, you're rising up. I mean, again, that idea of lying down, rising up. This is Luther, when he puts a small catechism together, he, he puts down a pattern for a prayer in the morning, prayer at the evening, that you have this whole understanding of teaching the next generation. I mean, you, you of course, go back to the Exodus, uh, Exodus 12 and the Passover. When you, you institute the Passover, Moses says, well, when your children ask, what does this mean? Here's what you're to tell them about the Passover. Or later on in the mm-hmm. book of Joshua, chapter 4, when they set up those stones of testimony, when they are then going to go in to the promised land, they're going over the Jordan River. Again, the idea is those stones are there. And when your children ask, what are these stones? What are they bearing witness to? What do they testify to that you are to teach the next generation? So Luther's really taking this whole understanding uh, from the five books of Moses, uh, the Torah, and of course, Joshua, that, that sixth book afterward. But it's that understanding that that faith is to be a living faith that's then to be given to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, so that children would go grow up in the way of the Lord. And with that understanding, which has been a real blessing as we go through the simplistic nature of the Ten Commandments, but incredibly, um, well, one, applicable to our life, but also realizing, one, the depth of our sin and the need of a Savior. And also, as Dr. Pless told us, is there's a prohibition and a prescription as we look at all these commandments that Luther so beautifully puts together. And that's where we find ourselves back and forth, back and forth. Now we're at the close. And so I want to start getting to this because, Pastor, we have a lot of great stuff to dig into when it comes to Exodus chapter 20. So I'm ready to start digging in. Are you ready? That sounds great. Let's do it. All right. We are on page 15 of the Luther's Small Catechism with Explanation, and we are at the close of the commandments. What does God say about all these commandments? He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Pastor, just real quickly, it's probably surprising to people that we might think since it's at the end of this, that that's, if you go in Exodus 20, that, that it would have been at the end and the verses, but actually it's kind of right in the middle of the 10 commandments, verses five and six, and these are very important for us understanding not only this part, but really all the old, old and New Testament of what is he speaking about? How do you want to begin? Well, I would begin by saying it's even more so than just in the middle. It's at the heart of the Ten Commandments, and that's why it flows right through the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. I mean, this is what we're flowing out of is this understanding of having the true God who has given himself to us. He's given us the gift of his word so we can hear him clearly and know his will. And so this is the God who has delivered you out of the house of slavery, the one who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so when Moses is receiving this gift of the Ten Commandments, and he is delivering this gift to the people of God at Mount Sinai, they're looking forward to the future when they go into the promised land. And when they go into the promised land, it will be the challenge before their eyes of falling into temptation to follow the false gods, to worship in the ways of their contemporaries in that land of Canaan. And so right away, we're going to establish 
this is the true God. Yahweh is the one. He's the one who brought you out of Egypt. The gods and the imagination, the the false images of what they think God is in the Canaan, in the land of Canaan, those are not true gods. That's not the God. That's not the one who is the God of promise, who promises the Christ, the seed of the woman that's going to crush a serpent's head. That's not the one who delivered and redeemed you. Your God is the God who redeems. And so it is flowing out of that understanding of that first commandment. And so that's why we tie all this together when you begin with the first commandment. And what Luther's doing is he's concluding with really it's still the first commandment because you go from verse three, which is you shall have no other gods before me to verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. I mean, so this is this whole Uh, understanding of the, the carved image is you are trying to imagine God. That's what a false image images. It's the way you imagine God to be. And then, of course, you make God in your own image and likeness, which is a fallen. It's a, a corrupted image and likeness because we're, of course, we, we are conceived and born in the image and likeness of Adam the rebel. And, and so when you go into the land of Canaan, you're going to be tempted to do what the unrepentant unbelievers are doing the ones who do not have this revealed knowledge of the true God. And so you're not going to take for yourself these ideas of what God is like, because you know for certain who God is because of his word. They don't have his word. And so you're not going to cling to fallen creation, anything that's in heaven or earth. You cling to the creator who made the heavens and the earth. And so that this whole understanding here is in that first commandment. So you move from the verse three to verse four to verse five, which you, you shall not bow down to them. Well, who is the them? It's the the other gods, the false gods, the gods that came later, the gods that you did not know before when you were delivered out of Egypt. You knew the true God when you were delivered out of Egypt. He's the one who made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. He's the one at the burning bush, and he's the one who redeemed you. And so any other God is not a redeeming God, not even the creator God, but just part of fallen creation. So it all flows out of that first commandment. So what Luther's really doing is just tying this whole package together that all of the commandments ultimately, in essence, are about the first commandment. I mean, you get the first commandment wrong, you get everything wrong. And so that's the starting point and the ending point. That's a great insight because I had overlooked that, yes, it is right after the first commandment. And and I love, and, and Dr. Pless talked about this, that if you, it not only summarizes the Ten Commandments, but it summarizes all of scripture, that there is only one true God. And if you're going to follow these other gods, what promises do they give? What eternal promises do they give? And it brings us to this pesky word, I would say, that it says that I am a jealous God, the Lord God says. What do, we Break that down for us, because that is, you know, I'm thinking jealousy like I'm in junior high again, wanting that person's electronic or something. So what does it mean that God is jealous? <laughs> well, the, the, this Hebrew word uh, for to be jealous is the, the same Hebrew word that's also translated as to be zealous. I mean, so it's extremely passionate about something, but in particular, it, it's extremely passionate about someone else, the people of God. And so God is zealous for Zion. God is jealous for Jerusalem. Now, when we talk this language of jealous in our everyday conversation, Conversation, we always have a kind of a negative connotation. You know, this guy 
and this gal and the the guy's a, a jealous guy because the gal talks to other boys or something like that and so we kind of have mm-hmm. this negative connotation it's not a negative connotation whatsoever i mean when god is a jealous god he's a zealous god for his people he is the husband and the church the people of god we are the bride i mean that's the image of christ and the church this is the image that we see in uh, the institution of marriage this union that we have between husband and bride the holy bride that he himself uh, redeems and he's the one who makes holy but when you have the understanding of this marital union when we're talking about uh, spirituality in the spiritual realm this is directly related to idolatry because when you go into the the this other land the land of Canaan you will be tempted to follow after false lovers you'll be looking for love in all the wrong places and when you go mm-hmm. after these false lovers what you're going to do is you are going to rip asunder what God has brought together and he has joined so there's always going to be this connection in scripture between a a physical adultery in a a, a physical marriage between a man and a woman which is then going to give us that image and that picture of this spiritual adultery, which is idolatry, where you then try to uh, break apart, rip asunder what God has joined together, and you're trying to join yourself to a false lover. And so when God is jealous, this whole uh, word here to his people, it, it is a word of warning that, hey, I mean, look at the context. Don't bow down to these other gods. Don't make these other gods in your own image and likeness, a fallen creation. Don't cling to fallen creation. It's a warning. And it says, why? Because I'm a jealous God. I visit the iniquity. That is the guilt. I visit the guilt of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Now, that's tied back to your question about teaching the next generation. I mean, this is a problem Mm -hmm. when you don't teach the next generation, and then that generation doesn't teach the next generation. I mean, you're just, you're overcome and overwhelmed with all this guilt and iniquities, transgressing against uh, the true God, rebelling like Adam did. Uh, So you want to, of course, teach the next generation so they teach the next generation. So that, of course, is contrast to that that chesed, that steadfast love that he shows to those who love him. But notice this language of he's visiting the iniquities of the fathers to the uh, children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I mean, in in Scripture, this whole language of, of hate is to separate. And that's even the language that's used in a divorce. I mean, so in the Old Testament, when you you separate, you're, you're hating. I mean, that's, that's a separating and a separation that's brought there, ripped asunder what God has joined together. And so you have this, this understanding of a jealous God in a warning form. So it's a warning to God's people. Uh, don't commit spiritual adultery which is idolatry. Don't go following after false lovers. Don't look, go looking for love in all the wrong places. Instead, you have the true God. You have the God who is love. You have the God who uh, is incarnate love. And you see this, uh, you know, no greater love at all than, than Christ coming and laying down his church, that, the, that God loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, that's, that's what this agape uh, love is, this sacrificial love. You have that true love. So don't go following after a false God like an, uh, or a false love with some kind of erotic 
love. And of course, that's what's going on in all these uh, temples, all this uh, uh, fertility cults and all of the, that erotic love type stuff that that fallen humanity uh, clings to and always has this uh, tendency to to wander off in. But this, this idea of a jealous God then is a warning to God's people, don't break or rip asunder what God has brought together. And this whole understanding also goes in another direction when God can speak that way towards these false gods or these these nations, the nations who have followed after these false gods, that God can tell them, hey, he's a jealous God for Israel. And so if you mess Mm -hmm. with Israel and you try to tempt them to go wander away from me, I'm going to make things right, and I'm going to rescue and redeem my people, because that's what I do. That's what I did in Egypt. That's what I'm going to do. That's the whole promise of the Christ. He's the creator, and he's the redeemer. And so you see this in Egypt. We've been redeemed out of Egypt. We've been taken out of the hand of Pharaoh. Uh, God, with a a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, the second person of the Holy Trinity, comes to deliver us. He's a, a redeemer, the one who rescues us from false worship, from idolatry, uh, from being just filled with all of this, uh, the, this, this unrepentant sin, which in this unrepentant sin, we are in rebellion against the true God and always trying to find uh, a false God. So God will speak that same word that he's jealous to those false gods or to the the nations that try to lead Israel away, try to tempt them away into this adulterous, spiritual adultery, this idolatry affair. I mean, you'll see that in the book of Nahum in particular, where you have in Nahum's day, they've fallen for all this. And so it starts off in chapter one in Nahum saying, Yahweh is a jealous God and an avenger. Yahweh is an avenger and a master of wrath. Yahweh is an avenger against his foes and he is a rage ranger against his enemies. And then you take that that same understanding that he's jealous, but then you put this understanding for Israel in a positive sense, if he's going to deliver them and redeem them out of this false worship, out of this idolatry, it's this good word back to Israel because they know that he is zealous for them. He is zealous for his bride. And so it's also this understanding where we as a people of God know that this is our God. He's jealous, therefore we ought not to rip asunder what he's brought together. But then when something happens and we've been led astray, we've been uh, uh, hoodwinked by the devil, we've been blinded by him, we've fallen away, we've fallen into despair, that he's the one that goes out to seek and to save the lost, that he's the one who is zealous for Zion. And so in Nahum, as soon as he establishes Yahweh is jealous, Then he goes on and says, Yahweh is slow to anger, but great in power. So Yahweh will certainly leave nothing unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the tempest, his feet are in the dust cloud. Now that's good news in the book of Nahum for the people of God, but it's bad news for the kingdoms of this earth that are always trying to prevent the kingdom of God from coming. And so basically what Nahum is doing is doing what Moses does. I mean, when you go back to Exodus, you have this in Exodus chapter 34, where Moses is... uh, you know, he, he receives this word from God, and God says, for you will not bow in worship to another God, okay? You're not going to follow a falsehood of God. Why? And Moses says in Exodus chapter 34, because Yahweh is jealous. 
Yahweh is jealous, and that's his name. <laughs> that's what Moses said. Mm. That's his name. His name is jealous. <laughs> and it says, lest you make a covenant in the inhabited, uh, the inhabited lands that you're going to, with the inhabitants themselves, with the people, and they prost- prostitute. Okay, that's that spiritual adultery, that they prostitute themselves after uh, their gods, and they sacrifice to their gods, and they invite you to eat and to sacrifice with them. And then they take your daughters and your sons. Now, again, that's that teaching of your sons and daughters, you know, as the head hole should teach his children. I mean, if you don't teach your children, if you don't teach the next generation or the generation after that, I mean, they're going to get hoodwinked and they're going to fall for all these false lovers. And so you're going to get the temptation in that land of Canaan, and they're going to try to take your daughters and your sons from you. And then their daughters will prostitute themselves after uh, their gods. And then they will cause your sons to prostitute themselves after their gods. I mean, so this is what's going on there in uh, Exodus chapter 34. But also, this is where Yahweh passes before Moses and proclaims Yahweh, Yahweh, a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding with this steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping the steadfast love to thousands forgiving Mm. iniquity, that guilt, and transgression and sin. And he does not leave uh, utterly unpunished all these things, but he punishes the guilt of the fathers on the sons and on the sons of the sons to the third and fourth generations. I mean, so Moses echoes this again in in Exodus chapter 34, where he's taking this understanding that, that Yahweh is a jealous God. But at the same time, he is a God who is steadfast. He has loyal love to his people. And so that jealous has that that understanding of warning, but it also has that understanding that if he has a loyal love to his people, he's zealous for Zion, and he's not going to let these other false gods or these other nations and kingdoms of this earth prevent his kingdom from coming. And so when Moses does this in Exodus chapter 34, I mean, that's what Nahum is doing too. Uh, But Nahum is going to emphasize that Yahweh is jealous. Yahweh is zealous for his people. As it tells us, you talk about the jealousy of God or the zealousy. It's a warning, but it's also a promise. Is that a good way for us to think about it? Well, I think that when you have it in Exodus and you right away, this is a warning. I mean, just straight up in the context. It's, hey, you're going to go into this land and you're going to get tempted. I mean, the context right there in Exodus uh, in the Ten Commandments is this is warning. He's a jealous God, mm. and immediately he punishes. <laughs> so that's that's right. warning. That's right. warning. But you know the truth of who this God is. So it's in that same passage where then he goes on to say uh, that he not only is a jealous God, and he's going to punish, but he's also a God who shows this steadfast love, this chesed. And so right there, you, you, you start off with the threat or the warning, but it's always founded in who you know God is in this revealed knowledge of salvation. You know that he's the redeemer. That's the context. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who redeemed you from the house of slavery. So it's that context that you know he has this steadfast love, this loyal love, this goodness, this mercy. That's who he is, and that's what he does. I mean, so it... it 
it definitely is warning right here in right right when the immediate context is uh, the threat of punishment. But what you have then later on, like in the prophets, when they kind of they're preaching this, because this I, I think that there's a little bit of a difference between a teaching and a preaching in this way, that preaching is then going to apply it to the circumstances that you're in. I mean, so the time that you get to the prophet Nahum, I mean, now all of a sudden they've fallen for this. I mean, this is way off in the future. They've fallen. The kingdoms have come and they've gone and they've led them astray. But now God is going to put this uh, to an end. And so in that word, then it becomes this positive. He is a jealous God. That's bad news for the kings of this earth. But for the people of God, it's good news because he's zealous for Zion. And so he's going to put an end to all of this idolatry. He's the one who's going to uh, convert our hearts so that we're not oppressed by this idolatry, that we would see Jesus as the one who is the promised son, the one who is the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head, the one who is going to free us from this lifelong uh, slavery to sin. This uh, fear that the devil has put into us, the, the fear of death, and always trying to find a way out of, of covering our own sin, uh, trying to justify ourselves, trying to avert God's wrath by making him merciful. I mean, that's basically what idolatry is, is it's a, a man-made method of trying to make God merciful. Uh, but you can't make God merciful. He is merciful. So I, I think that in that way, there's kind of this teaching where you're teaching the Ten Commandments. And it's like a, it's a warning. <laughs> I mean, it's a, a threat. Don't right. do this. But then later on, after you've done it, then this same word then can be applied with that gospel understanding of the promise that he is the God who is a redeemer. And he's a God who seeks and saves the lost. I, I, I think that's a good way to look at it. And I would definitely encourage our listeners as we're going through the close of the commandments is to, at the same time, read Exodus 34. As Pastor said so well, clearly this is a warning, but we see these promises and it just kind of, you know, it peels back the onion even more. We're able to see more fully the grace of God that ultimately is revealed to us in Christ. But right now we need to take our break. Uh, we are studying the close of the commandments in Luther's small catechism with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, and we'll be right back. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Welcome back. We are studying the close of the commandments in Luther's small catechism with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Now, Pastor, I wanted to ask this question because every time I've gone through the Ten Commandments and when I've gone through this with young people, there's a little bit of fear that comes upon them. If Well, if the kids are paying attention, it's 6.30 at night on a Wednesday, and usually we just fed them food, so they're usually falling asleep. But if they are paying attention, it does say this, um, punishing to the third and fourth generation. And then they ask this kind of question, and it comes in different forms. 
are you saying that my great grandfather or great grandmother did something, then therefore I get punished for them? How would you address a young person or all of us as that goes through our mind in this context? Well, I think what we want to see here is going back to that question about how the head of the household should teach his household, the Christian faith, uh, that there are consequences that are happening here. I mean, so when you have one generation uh, is rebellious and turns away from God and follows after a false God, then what happens is the next generation is taught that. I mean, they're learning from example. Uh, they're learning directly by instruction or just indirectly about how things are, are working in life. They say, hey, it's funny, we're, we don't go to the temple in Jerusalem. I, I, I know others in the family go to the temple in Jerusalem, but we go to the local temple here. <laughs> it's, uh, it's much closer and it's a lot funner. It's a lot more entertaining. Um, so that generation, then it goes to the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. I mean, th this is what you're seeing in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, when Moses is warning them, saying that, hey, you didn't listen to me when I was alive. I know you're not going to listen to me when I'm dead and gone on to glory, but I'm giving you my written word so you can be certain and sure that you have the voice of God. But if you don't listen to the voice of God, you're going to be cursed. And so this curse is just going to follow on generationally because that's how you're going to then be brought up with. I mean, that's the, the whole book of Judges is this whole cycle of, of how the people turn away from God. But then in that turning away, he brings this punishment upon them because he warned them. And then when they're punished, then they cry out to him. And then he raises up a deliverer, a judge who comes and rescues them uh, from these, these foreign nations. But then the cycle goes on again <laughs> and they turn away again. I mean, so you get stuck in these uh, cycles from generation to generation. And Moses had warned them that there's going to be a tipping point and that at that tipping point, Israel is going to be vomited out of, of the land. And so Moses is already telling them that this is going to happen. It will happen that you will go off into exile. You will want to worship in the way of your contemporaries. And so therefore, you will go off with your contemporaries. You want their gods, you'll have their gods. And so you end up with the whole destruction of uh, the northern and southern kingdom gets ripped asunder. Uh, Jeroboam starts his own uh, worship methods of, of trying to make God merciful with his temples. Now he's got the temple at Dan and Bethel. So he doesn't want the, the people of God to go down to Jerusalem. And, and so this is the northern kingdom, northern kingdom of Israel, then eventually gets wiped off the map uh, by the Assyrians. And then later on, uh, southern uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, where you have the temple, you have the promise of God's name and his promised presence at the temple with the Levites. I mean, remember Jeroboam made up his own priesthood that weren't even Levites, according to God's word. He rejected the means of grace. And so then you have later on in Judah, at Jerusalem, they also reject the means of grace and they start mimicking the ways that the world worships. And so Moses had warned them. I mean, there's consequences. And so what happens is then generationally, you go off into exile. I mean, you're in exile for 70 years, which is basically a generation. Um, so then you have the diaspora where the people of God are dispersed. And some of the people of God, after that Babylonian captivity, 
they kind of like it in Babylon. <laughs> you know, they kind of, mm-hmm. they kind of like worshiping in the way of the world, and they get stuck there generation after generation. I mean, we see the same thing when uh, Jesus comes. That whole trend throughout the scripture is that the word of God comes to his own people, and the people of God over and over again, they reject the word, the incarnate word, when he comes among them, his own don't receive him, and they, of course, resist the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this, of course, is that whole split between uh, the apostles going to the Jews first and then the apostles going out to the Gentiles. I mean, the way Luther would always talk about this is that the gospel is like a rain cloud. And so it rains for a temporary time in an area, but after a while you say, we don't want it anymore. And so the gospel just moves on. And then now you have generations upon generations that don't have the the, the blessings of that gospel waters coming from the heavens. And, and so this is part of that whole understanding of this punishment that goes on from generation to generation. I mean, you get to a point where God says, okay, have it your way. You don't want to go my way. You can go your way. Your will can be done. Go and have it done. And then the people go off and you just generation after generation get stuck in that rut. It's, I mean, it's no different than when we're ordering, you know, at a fast food restaurant, you know, have it your way. And unfortunately, <laughs> we take that interpretive key and then bring it to God. And, and that's what they were doing then. I mean, it's very clear. Well, I want God to be like this. And so, Pastor, is this still a problem today? A few minutes uh, before we move on. Is this still a problem today as, as we hear Exodus 20? It is. It's always been a problem. I mean, so it's a problem in the days of Moses. I mean, Moses is about to die, and he says, hey, this is going to happen. You didn't listen to me while I'm alive. You're not going to listen to me when I'm dead. He hands the baton on to Joshua. At the end of the book of Joshua in Joshua 24, Joshua basically does the same thing and says, hey, (laughs) I'm about to die and go on to glory too. And he says, so let's just get this straight. You, You cannot serve Yahweh. I mean, this he just flat out says it. You cannot serve Yahweh because he is holy and jealous. He's a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. I mean, you want to talk about harsh, harsh law? This is Joshua taking that Ten Commandments and just preaching this as harsh as possible, saying, you can't do it. You won't serve him. And notice that he's jealous. And when you don't serve him and you rip asunder what he's brought together and you follow false lovers— there will be no forgiveness. Your transgressions will not be covered. Your sins will not be taken away. So if you forsake Yahweh and serve these foreign gods, these other gods, he's going to turn and bring disaster upon you. And so Joshua is saying, are you guys sure you're up to this? And then the people respond, yes. <laughs> yes. Wow. We will. We will. I mean, and this is what we do like in the, the confirmation, right? I mean, when we're, we're confirmed, you know, do you renounce the devil in all his ways? And you're saying, yes, I do. But you also acknowledge that you need the help of God. So you say, yes, I will with the help of God. I mean, God is the one who who keeps us. The Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens us, and keeps us in this one holy uh, faith and the, the holy Christian church. And so you... you except by the grace of God, I mean, you're going to go off. You're going to go off and serve other gods. And so you constantly need his grace, his favor, his gifts, uh, that the sacraments given to you, where you get the body and blood of Jesus given for you, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, so that you're reassured again and again of Christ crucified, the one who had to die for you. And so the more things change, the more they stay the same. 
I mean, it was the problem in the days of Moses and the days of Joshua. Is the problem still in the days of Isaiah and all the prophets? It was a problem in the days of, of Jesus. It's the problems that even St. Paul was dealing with. Uh, it's the problems that we still deal with now. I mean, it was a problem Luther had in his day. It's a problem that we have uh, 500 years after the whole beginning of the Reformation. It's because the issue at hand is original sin. And by nature, we don't want God. By nature, we hate God and we hate his word and we don't want to listen to it. But God is good and God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in this steadfast love. And so he's the one who's always seeking and saving the lost. He's the one who's always coming to us and assuring us. And so that's why Luther, again, in the small catechism at the close of the day, when you, you pray to the, the Father uh, through the Son, and you're, you're praying that he would forgive you all your sins which you have done wrong. Graciously keep me this night from all harm and danger. Because it, it's that grace that we constantly need. And if if the Christian faith, if if the Christian faith was just about a list of things you're supposed to do, have at it, then we would say, oh, this isn't a problem. You can achieve it. You can do it. I mean, but remember, when the Ten Commandments are given at Mount Sinai, this is at the same time where Moses is giving these Ten Commandments, but Moses is also the one going up to the top of Mount Sinai, meeting with the second person, the Holy Trinity, uh, the Son of God, and he's giving him this whole sacrificial system. So, yes, this is what you ought to do. Uh, you're to do these things. You should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. But then he's also instituting the means of grace so that you can constantly be assured of the steadfast love of the Lord. I mean, so this is the whole context of the Ten Commandments being delivered to us, that we constantly still need the forgiveness of sins, and we need the work of the Holy Spirit who's always beginning anew in us, so we're always starting over. We're always beginning to, starting to have new ways of thinking and new ways of speaking and new ways of acting, but that old Adam in us just does not want to die. <laughs> that, that, yeah. that old Adam wants to go his own way and make a God in his own image. And well, and, and wants to act as if the God, our God, the one true God is not zealous, that it's just one option of many, that he does, is not compassionate, is not caring, is not um, steadfast love, a God of steadfast love, and trying to convince you of that every single day, which is um, just mind boggling when we really think about it. And thanks be to God for his Holy Spirit. Now, Pastor, we haven't gotten to the explanation <laughs> of the passage that we read. So we have a good uh, 14, 15 minutes left. So let's get to the explanation. Um, once again, from the close of the commandments, page 15 of Luther's small catechism. What does this mean? <laughs> there it is. God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. Now, this I mean, it gets this brings us to our knees. He threatens to punish all who break these commandments. And we have said over and over again, guess what? You've broken them. So what does that leave us with? And what does this tell us nowadays? Well, I, I think that when we look at this, you know, I, I find it fascinating that when Luther says we should therefore fear his wrath, that I, I don't know about you, but I, I've heard so many times that 
people try to backpedal on this and they, they try to soft it, soften the blow here. And they say, well, what fear really means is just uh, being respectful. This <laughs> is this is far more than just being respectful. <laughs> I mean, he threatens to punish all who who break this. I mean, this is and so again when he says I'm a jealous god, I mean, this is this is a harsh harsh word of law. It's not going to go well with you if you try to file for divorce. If you try to uh, go after another lover, it's not going to work. And I mean, ironically, this is in a, a a setting in which Moses allows for a a certificate of divorce. And when the rabbis later on, by the time of Jesus, they've already codified this understanding that in uh, the physical marriage, that if you find another, so a man, so the man, uh, according to the rabbinical teaching, uh, pharisaical teaching at the time of Jesus, is that if, if a man finds another woman who is more attractive that he prefers, he can write a certificate of divorce. And I mean, it is so ironic that that was their practice of divorce, that simple, that that's exactly what's going on when they're going into the land of Canaan. And they say, you know what? I like that other God a little bit better. I mean, that other God is so much nicer. My God is so mean. I mean, he's jealous. That God is just tender and loving and just lets me do whatever I want to do. I mean, so th- there's that, <laughs> that total like, yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that that total understanding there that, that there is something directly related to marriage. And so when Jesus comes and says, no, you, you can't get divorced. Why? Because God in the beginning, he instituted marriage to be at one man and one woman. The only reason Moses gave you a certificate of divorce is because of the hardness of your heart. I mean, so that that's basically this idea here is you're saying, I would like a certificate of divorce. And he's he, he's warning you, it's not going to go well. It's not going to go well. However, when you remain in this marriage, uh, this marriage between Christ being the, the husband who lays down his life for the church and the church being the bride, if you stay in this marriage, you you have this, this union that in faith receives everything that Jesus has. So you're, you're completely, fully blessed. We, we are given every spiritual blessing that we have. I mean, so when you, by faith, we are connected to Jesus. So by faith, we have his righteousness. His righteousness becomes mm-hmm. our righteousness. And of course, our wretchedness becomes his wretchedness. I mean, the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so that's that marriage relationship, or I shouldn't say relationship, I should say this marital union, because that's really what we're talking mm-hmm. about here, that we have what the husband gives to offer. And so you have this rich blessing when you remain connected. But again, this is where the Holy Spirit is working through the Word. The one who continues to call, continues to gather, continues to enlighten, and continues to keep us on the one true faith. And how does the Holy Spirit do this? Well, through the Word. That Word that's given to us through these means, the means of the written and spoken Word on ink and paper, the one you can hear in your ear, uh, the Word that's given to us to eat in the body and blood— uh, at the sacrament of the altar, through uh, under the cover of the bread and the wine, that word that's given to us in those baptismal waters, that it becomes a life-giving water. And it, it's through those means that the Holy Spirit is constantly working to heal this union. 
I mean, we, we always want to fracture it. We always want to rip it asunder. But uh, this is the, the true uh, marital counseling, if you will. I mean, the Holy Spirit is the counselor, right? He's the, the comforter, uh, another comforter, Jesus being the primary one, that now we have one who continues to mend this union that God himself has started. So when you're talking about the blessings and the curse, I mean, even throughout the whole of the Old Testament, whenever you talk about blessings, we need to keep in context that if there is a blessing, there is also going to be, on the opposite end, a curse. I mean, so that curse is a rejection of the gifts that God gives. And then when you reject the gifts that God gives, well, then you're in that state of not having those gifts that bring life that brings salvation, the forgiveness of sins, uh, life now, eternal life, the abundant life that Jesus comes to bring. So whenever you have blessing, notice that on the flip side of it, there's always a curse. And that curse is always for those who don't listen, who don't learn, who don't want to hear what the Lord says, who don't want to rejoice in the voice of God. And that was constantly the problem throughout the Old Testament, that although the people of God had the Word of God, they were constantly being tempted and led astray into a spiritual adultery, idolatry. And then the Lord would send the prophets, and what did the prophets do? They would always take the words of Moses, the Torah, and then they would expound upon that. They would echo those words of Moses. So you knew what Moses said. He wrote it down so you can be certain and sure. But then there would be those days where you would go astray and God would raise up a prophet then to give you the word again vocally, verbally. But then you also have the writing prophets who then once again can give it to you in certainty in a written form so you can know what the voice of God is and you can continue to rejoice in that voice. There's a number of thoughts that have gone through my mind as you as you expounded on this so beautifully is that natural tendency for us to one minimize so the, the language goes like this if you minimize sin you minimize our savior and and that is a, a very real temptation as you go through the 10 commandments and here in this close of the commandments if you minimize his wrath right then you you minimize well God's uh, power I guess uh, uh, the the uh, I don't know how to exactly say it but we often will want to dismiss the wrath as if you know we can kind of just throw that to the side but then we minimize the depth of of the cross you know him taking that wrath upon himself or or the potential the jealous the zealousy of our God and that if we go the other direction and don't do what he says it's not going to end well but it's not just my life won't be quote as good, but there are eternal implications that are well destructive <laughs> and not good for me or my children or my great grandchildren yes. grandchildren. Yes. Go down the list. I mean, all of that we minimize the wrath, and that has huge implications. Other thoughts on that? Well, th- this I'll give you this this thought. You know, as you're saying that. What, what happens in the Old Testament, when we talk about uh, somebody who's converted to the faith, or reconverted for that matter, we say that he fears Yahweh. I mean, you see it's like, for instance, in the book of Jonah, when these uh, Gentiles who did not have the word of the promise of the Savior who's going to uh, defeat death for them and give them the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, uh, they, they fear Yahweh. And, and so when you have it in that context, that context of now they fear Yahweh, it's the context of they are God-fearing, believing 
repentant sinners. And what that means is when you fear Yahweh, you know that you cannot stand before Yahweh in your own righteousness. So this is, you know, your fear is wrath, because if you try to stand before him with your own righteous deeds, what you have done, your act of righteousness, the things you have done, uh, you can't stand. Uh, he is a consuming fire, a jealous God, and all those works will be made known, and there it, you come to an end. And so it, one who fears Yahweh knows that you cannot stand in your own righteousness. You can only stand before God because of the righteousness of Jesus, because you need another righteousness. And that's the only way, by God's grace, for the sake of Christ, that you can stand before his presence. And this is why we have the assurance that Jesus, who was crucified, for our transgressions, raised for our justification, so that we'd have this righteousness by faith, now he stands as our high priest. And because he stands in heaven for us, he stands with us and we with him as a believer, so that we know that we can stand in the presence of the Father all because of the Son. He's the one who gives us access. I mean, th this is why Paul will say in Romans chapter 5, uh, having been justified, therefore, we now have peace with God. I mean, so that's that peace that we have, uh, knowing that peace in the conscience, that in God's sight, we are good because of the righteousness of Jesus. So in that way, in the Old Testament, when you talk about uh, someone being converted to faith or reconverted to faith, that they fear Yahweh, that now they fear Yahweh, they know they cannot stand in their own righteousness before him. And so here, I mean, that, that whole language of fear his wrath, because it's connected to if you try to stand before him with your righteousness, you're toast. I mean, he is a consuming fire. And as we look at this, we have a few minutes left. And to look at the very end of the commandments, it says, he says, therefore, twice. First, therefore, fear his wrath. Okay. Then at the end, we talked about grace and the promise. It says at the end, therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. Pastor, with about three minutes left in our time, how are we as the redeemed, baptized, confessing Christians how are we to love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands? Well, we, we hear his word. So we, of course, we receive the absolution. We know where we stand. We know that before God, because of Christ, we stand as righteous, not our own righteousness. It is a, a passive righteousness that is received by faith. It's a gift to us. We all are beggars before God, and we have this gift. And so now that we know where we stand with God because of Christ, the things are good with God, then we can. our conscience is clear, and we can begin to be of service to one another. And that's the keeping of the commandments. I mean, so when we talk about God giving us the commandments and saying, hey, this is what you are to do. Well, now with the gift of the Holy Spirit, Christ, our high priest, he continues to pour out the spirit upon us through his word. And the spirit continues to work to convert us, to give us these new urges, these new impulses to begin to do these things. So we are always in a state of beginning to keep the commandments, but we never keep them perfectly. Only Christ kept them perfectly, and we constantly have his forgiveness where he He covers over the sins and the, the failures to keep the commandments. I mean, when we have done what is forbidden or what, when we fail to do what is required, that he covers over those sins. And so we begin, and so out of love, then we love God. I mean, so that's going back to the first commandment. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, allows us to actually rightfully 
uh, fear God, love God, and trust in Him. Without Jesus, without without the conversion of the Holy Spirit in the heart, we can't. We, we can't truly fear God. That's why we sin. I mean, we, we sin because we say, well, it doesn't really matter. I can do what I want. I'm my own God. I mean, don't really love him. By nature, we hate him. And of course, we don't trust him. We have no faith. Uh, natural man doesn't know these things of God. Natural man cannot believe these things. But it's the Holy Spirit who's working in us, and we're always in a state of beginning beginning to properly fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And so beginning to keep these commandments, always starting over, always being renewed, always being rescued and redeemed. Pastor, one minute left. How would you summarize, well, I guess the whole Ten Commandments and and encourage our listeners in Christ this day? Well, the whole of the Ten Commandments are summarized by who God is. I am Yahweh. And that's a confession of faith in the Old Testament, that it's not just any God. It's not just a God that Mohammed has, or a God that Joseph Smith has, or whoever it has. This is Yahweh. The Yahweh who specifically delivered the Israelites out of slavery, captivity, and bondage in Egypt. He's the one who redeems. So he's the redeeming God. He is the same Yahweh who spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same Yahweh who spoke to Noah, who uh, spoke to Adam and Eve, the same Yahweh who created all things and comes to redeem all things and gives us the promise of the redemption in the one who is the son, the suffering servant, who will overcome sin, death, and the devil for us. So always the Ten Commandments are summarized in who our God is, and then he gives us this gift of his word so that we know his will. And so that's our God, the God who comes to redeem us even from ourselves. The Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, clearly confessing Christ from the close of the Ten Commandments. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, thank you for being with us on Concord Matters. Oh, it was my pleasure. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finnern. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.